Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Let's read Genesis chapter 19, verse 1 to 29. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in uh, the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his, with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he uh, insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and uh, pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, The men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them to safety out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, uh, as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, "Flee for your lives! Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you'll be swept away." But Lot said to them, "No, my lords, please." Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I'll grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord 
uh, from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and uh, she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the uh, catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Father, we do thank you that you uh, do speak to us and you, st- you speak to us still even today. And we pray as we come before your word, even though this text might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable and might make us cringe uh, here and there, I pray, Lord, that you will um, show us the, the, the message you want us to hear and point us in the right direction towards um, the goodness of who you are, the mercy that comes from your hand and the great news of Jesus in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I came across a prayer the other day that I want to read out to you because it sounds legit. And I'll, let me just read it to you before you guess where it's from. Uh, it, it said this, Dearest Father and Almighty Creator, we ask for your grace tonight despite our pride, your forgiveness despite our doubt. Most of all, Lord, we ask for your love to soothe, soothe us through these dark times. May we face whatever is to come in your divine will with courage and open hearts of acceptance. Amen. I don't know if you guys know where that's from. I don't think you would. It's actually from a Hollywood movie. Uh, It's actually from the mouth of that actor, Timothy Chalamet. Do you guys know who that is? Uh, Gen Z would know who they are. I don't even know who this guy is. Timothy Chalamet. He plays this random character in the movie, Don't Look Up. I don't know if you guys seen it. It's it's on Netflix. Uh, The prayer sounds legit, right? It sounds like a legit Christian prayer. Father, almighty creator, we ask for your grace. You know, despite our pride, your forgiveness despite our doubt. It's happening when the world is about to end. This is what the movie is about. The world's going to end. There's an asteroid coming you know, towards the Earth. There's these scientists that are trying to tell the world, the public about it, trying to get the government to help do something. If the asteroid hits the Earth, the whole world's going to get destroyed. It, it's threatening all of mankind, humankind. Right? It's, it's a satire. It's a, it's a comedy about culture wars, global warming, and, and these, these scientists that sound crazy, but going out there trying to tell everyone, hey, we need to look up and do something. It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and, and the, the movie's interesting, and, and it's often downplayed, even in our culture today, when we think about uh, the, the seriousness of things like global warming or whatever it might be, people aren't looking up. As, the, as, the, um, as you watch the movie, you'll discover, as the world's going to end, people are asking the question, what are we, what are we meant to do, though? Yeah, the world's going to end. What are we meant to do? They're, some are scrambling, some are trying to connect with loved ones, uh, and there's a character towards the end that brings up the question, what, what do we do? Do we... Do we, do we have sex now, or do we, sh- should we pray? Maybe we should just drink, drink our sorrows away. The film really leaves you wondering, what would you be doing if you knew the world was going to end? Where would you find yourself? Do we just end this life seeking self-pleasure? Is self-preservation, the survival of our species, is that the goal? Or is there someone or something greater to look up to? Like Timothy Chalamet's character, would you be praying to God the Father, the Almighty Creator? for grace despite pride, forgiveness despite doubt. I'm guessing most of us never, never really consider this question, do we? Because there is no urgency. Often we are comfortable, we are self-sufficient, life is smooth sailing. But what if you and I were confronted with this? What if we were like the scientists in the movie who could see the asteroid coming? If you knew the end, would that shape how you live today? 
where you're looking towards? You see, what we read in Genesis 19 is a story about a city that does face the end. It does face destruction. A city that will be wiped out. A city under the judgment of God. And the chilling question that we are confronted by is, where are we in this story when the judgment of God and destruction comes for us? My goal today is simple. We're going to explain, I'm going to explain what's going on in this chapter in Genesis 19, and we're going to see how God is at work and then why it's relevant to us. All right? That's the goal today. But before we get into chapter 19, we do need to understand what happened in chapter 18 because we didn't cover it last week. Uh, we looked at chapter 17. Um, but it's, it's important to know the context because this is where the story of Sodom starts in chapter 18. Uh, in 18, halfway through, where we meet our protagonist, Abraham. So Abraham's the main character in this series from 12 to 22. Uh, at the beginning uh, of the series, we heard that God made a covenant with Abraham. He made promises to Abraham to, to bless him, um, that Abraham will be a father of many nations, inherit a great uh, promised land. And so in chapter 18, we have God who meets up with uh, Abraham again. And this is what the Lord says, verse 20 in chapter 18. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men, so there were men with God at the time, the angelic beings, they turned away, went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Verse 23, then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. The dialogue continues between Abraham and God, uh, and, it's, and he continues on asking, and asking God, what if there are 45 righteous people? What if there are 40? What if there are 30? What if there are 20? What if there are 10 righteous people? Will you spare the city? And God says, yes, if there are 10 righteous people, I'll spare the city. And that dialogue ends. That's the end of chapter 18. Right? We have a God here in, this, in chapter 18 where, where Abraham identifies him. He's the judge of the earth. And God is sharing with Abraham there's a sin in Sodom and Gomorrah that is so grievous that he must do something about it. And Abraham's talking to God. He's playing this role of, of intercessor. He's intervening for the city of Sodom and saying, hey, God, show mercy, please. If there are righteous people there, spare this city. Now, that's important. The context is important before we get into chapter 19. Because when we read chapter 19, who do we start with? We start with Abraham's nephew, Lot. That's who he is. He's Abraham's nephew. He's living where? In the city of Sodom. You need your Bibles open at chapter 19. Keep it open there because I'm going to keep referring back to chapter 19 as we unpack it. So far, we've heard a lot about Lot in chapters uh, 13 and 14. That's where we first introduced to him. Uh, and we heard about how um, Lot is having this sort of steady progression towards the city. When, when they move into the land, uh, they're looking around saying, where should we set up camp? Abraham says, I'll go this way, you go that way. And, and Lot chooses to go towards the city. So he looks over that direction. Looks, wow, that place looks good. I'm going to go move and set up tent over there. In chapter 13, that's where he's living. In chapter 14, he lives, we find him within the walls of the city. So he's living in Sodom itself. Now in chapter 19, what do we read? He's sitting at the city gate. That's how it begins. Who sat at the city gate, though? In, in ancient cultures, the ones who are sitting at the city gates are usually the city leaders. Lot now is not just a citizen of Sodom. He's most likely part of the city council. He's hustled. He's worked up the ranks. He's there as a city elder. And now sitting at the gates, there are these two strangers, these two men. Assuming, we assume that they're angelic beings, so they're with God before in chapter 18. They're approaching the city. And he sees them coming. He bows down before them. And with good old ancient Near Eastern hospitality, Lot invites them over to his house. 
At this point, we don't know what Lot is thinking. Maybe he's just being really hospitable. The strangers, they decline. They don't want to come with him. They go, no, we'll stay in the city square. We'll be fine. But Lot's like, no, no, you should come. Perhaps, perhaps Lot knows something. Sleeping on the streets is perhaps really dangerous. He probably knows that. Perhaps, you know, you don't stay out after curfew in this city. It's a dangerous place. Lot knows probably already what the city is capable of. Let's read from verse 3, actually. It says this. He insisted so strongly that they did, that they did go with him and entered and so that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Oh man, oh, I feel gross already, right? Like, there's a, like, it's like a group of hyenas who haven't eaten in days, and they see these two men, fresh meat, they want to pounce. Uh, it should make us squirm. And, and what we're reading here in the Bible the Holy Scriptures is, is an account of a city where there are these men, young and old, surrounding Lot's home, demanding that these two, these two men, these angels, could be handed over to them and essentially raped, gang-raped. It's heavy. And, and the Bible doesn't hold back on the, on the gruesome and gritty nature of humanity and what people are, are capable of. It's dark and it's, it, it makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? But at the same time, it's, it's really, I mean, it's real. Uh, we see this stuff in the news just this week, actually. Coincidentally, or by God's providence, I saw a heading come up. 22-year-old Sydney woman gang-raped after meeting man she met on a dating app. Man, that terrifies me for people using dating apps. The Bible here isn't holding back. It's so real and raw about the wickedness that exists in our world today. But we also need to be careful with this. Uh, too often, this Bible chapter, this chapter in Genesis, is, is used to target specifically the sin of homosexuality. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? And I can imagine for those who do identify LGBT, this chapter would be highly offensive, hateful even. Uh, the context of a gang of men wanting to rape these two angels. I mean, let's be clear. Firstly, homosexuality, homosexuality isn't the, the focus that we should, uh, of this passage. Sodom is being condemned for their sin. And that sin might include actions such as that, um, but it's, it, it's really sexual immorality of, of heterosexual nature too. It's the wickedness of the city. It would include all types of wickedness. Oppression against the poor, advantage of the, taking advantage of the vulnerable. Sodom is known to be the city of sin, sin so grievous that it's reached God, and God has come down to investigate. See, while this disgusts us and even outrages us, I think what the passage is getting us to see is actually look at ourselves as well. Because when we think about sexual immorality throughout the Bible, none of us are innocent. Yes, we might not associate with these men in Sodom, but in our hearts there, there is lust, isn't there? I mean, there are desires that are unholy. God gives us good sex. I mean, good sex is in the Bible, but it's within the bounds of heterosexual marriage. It's clear what God's design for sex is. But I'm sure all of us are guilty of a, a, those traces of sexual immorality, right? There's a hint, at least in our hearts. None of us are completely clean. Sodom is actually showing us this wickedness, how far wickedness can go, though. The author is emphasizing something for us, the society without order, a society far, far from God, far from righteousness, far from God's law, consumed and enveloped in sin and wickedness. And so when we read this account, we need, to, we need to feel the, the, the weight and the gravity, and we do, don't we? It makes us, I feel, I feel sick when I read this. And not only that, 
we're, we're reading, the emphasis isn't just a small group of men, is it? It's not just a, 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 a mob. It, it's not the mafia. It's, it's, a men, it's all the men of the city, young and old. They're surrounding the house. Their wickedness is so egregious that the author wants us to feel the gravity of the depravity in this entire city. Lot tries to protect them. Lot says no. He closes the door. He goes, no, don't come and don't do this wicked thing. And while we might want to applaud Lot at this moment for his courage, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Verse 6, let's read it. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. You can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. What? They've come under the protection of my roof and your daughters aren't under the protection of your roof? Come on, Lot. What is he thinking? What kind of father is willing to throw their, his virgin daughters out to the lions to get torn apart, to be, to be gang raped by this violent mob of men? Oh, it just gets worse, doesn't it? What kind of father would do such a thing? But you know what? Before Lot does anything foolish, the angels do intervene. Expelliarmus, they say. The men are blinded, right? <laughs> the men are blinded. They don't know what they're doing. They're trying to find the door. Lot is urged to hurry, get your family, get out of the city. Imagine the adrenaline. I mean, these, these two men aren't ordinary men. They're, you know, to be out, you know they're, they're the angels that have come. But, you know, we're, we're looking at our nephew Lot here, and Lot is just, oh, he's not really feeling it, is he? I mean, the adrenaline, the pre-workout, it hasn't kicked in. He goes to his sons, you know, his sons-in-laws, like the ones that are going to marry his daughters. And I'm not sure how he delivered the message, but they think he's joking. It's like, oh, guys, God is going to destroy the city. <laughs> we sort of got to go. <laughs> you know how you do that? You know when people, like, they give you this awkward laugh when it's something really serious and then you don't know whether to take them seriously or not? Uh, you know, when, when uh, I think of COVID, when COVID started and you were patient zero and you went to that party and all the people around you got sick because of you and you were like, oh, hey guys, ha, 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 so I got COVID and uh, you might have it too. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it was awkward, wasn't it? it was just, you know, you're sort of making a joke out of it, but it's, you know, you're like, well, what? Are you, are you being serious? Are you joking? You know, it, it, we do that and it makes just everything we're saying just sound you know, like a joke. You come home from work, you made redundant, hey, wife, uh, I got fired today. <laughs> but we do that, don't we, in our anxiety. We, we, we make a joke out of it. And, and so I don't know what Lot's doing here, but his sons-in-laws, they think he's joking. You know, it's not a joke, though. Lot is urged to get his family out of, out of the city. It's not, it's, it's not funny. Sodom's going to be destroyed. Get to the chopper, Lot. You know, like, run. Run, they say. But even as dawn comes, what are we told? Verse 16, we're told he hesitates. That's the word we're told here in, in, in the reading today. But if you have a different translation, the word here more likely is better translated as he lingers. He lingers at dawn when destruction's about to come. Oh, you're just getting really frustrated at this moment. Like, there's, like imagine a tsunami's about to hit our town. And what are you doing? You're lingering around, pottering around the house. You're cleaning the dishes, folding some clothes. Hey, I'll make a cup of tea. Why not? This is red alert, though. You have to evacuate. The city's being destroyed. Verse 16. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. 
Verse 17, as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. You see, in this moment, we see God show mercy to Lot. Mercy, as we know, is withholding punishment that is deserving, right? That's mercy. And we've seen it so far that, that Lot, well, at least in this story, Lot isn't really righteous. Like he should have been swept away with this city as well, most likely. He wasn't any better. He was willing to throw his daughters out to the mob. He, he, he flirted with the city. He moved into the city. He climbed the corporate ladder to be a leader of this city of sin. And although he has those moments where you know, he's showing hospitality to these two angels trying to protect them, come on, like it's ambiguous, right? Where is his heart, really? Yet God is merciful to him, merciful to his family. He grabs, the angels grab them and, and run them out of town. But I can, I can understand that. I can understand how Lot's feeling. I, I don't know about you, but Lot's thinking, I don't want to give this all up. Leaving the city means I'm leaving behind my status, my wealth, my ambitions, everything I've worked so hard for. Lot's hesitating. Of course he's going to linger because his heart isn't in the right place. I know how that feels. To heed the words and warning of God, but then think, oh, but I sort of, I'm sort of comfortable right now. I'm sort of happy with my comfort. You know, I'm not sure how Lot's feeling, but that's the vibe we're getting. If we keep reading, we actually feel a lot more with Lot's wife. Verse 23, let's read that. It says, By the time Lot reaches Zohar, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities of the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. Verse 26, But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. This is the whole fire and brimstone sermon, isn't it? God raining down judgment upon sin. But really, it's not something that should surprise us. I mean, this isn't the first time in the Bible, in Genesis especially, where we've seen God rain down judgment upon sin and weakness, is it? There's a story all the way back in Genesis 6 about a man called Noah who built an ark and God rained down judgment upon the earth because of the sin and weakness of men and flooded the earth. But here we see the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and God brings judgment again, destruction, and he's raining down, burning sulfur, like a volcano eruption. The people of the city are wiped out, we're told. Lot and his wife, they're told, run, don't look back. What do we find out in verse 26? Lot's wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. What is going on here? Uh, I, I read this and I'm like, why are we punishing her? Like, why is she being punished for looking back over her shoulder. I mean, if there was fire and brimstone coming out of the sky, man, I would want to look. I'd want to take a peek. There's pretty lights in the sky, right? River fire last week, fireworks, spectacular. I want to see, see the pretty lights in the sky. Get your phone out, take a photo. Is, is that it? Is Lot's, Lot's wife just curious at this moment? She's looking back and wow, look at that. Is she turned into salt just for her curiosity? Well, I think there's a few hints already why she's turned into salt. But the one first one is we heard Lot already hesitating about leaving the city, right? So, so there's this hint that Lot's wife doesn't want to leave the city too. Two, though, she disobeyed the warning. The angel said, don't look back. But three, I think there's a reason why she's specifically turned into salt. I think it's purposeful, right? Salt in our time is used for what purpose? Usually it's for seasoning, right? We, we, we chuck salt into our food for fragrance and taste, 
But there is another purpose for salt, isn't there? Uh, during COVID a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, yeah, 2020, a couple of years ago, during COVID lockdown, what was everyone doing? They were making sourdough, weren't they? Now, I wasn't making sourdough because I really wanted to eat kimchi during this time. And I'm not Korean, but Korean kimchi, I love eating kimchi. So I thought, I'm going to make kimchi during lockdown. So one of our members, Sura, she helped me make kimchi. Now, I don't know if you've ever made kimchi before from scratch. There's a lot of salt. I feel like I was pouring a whole, she's like, I was like, when do I stop? Just keep going. Just keep going. I, I felt like I poured a whole jar of salt into these, into these veggies. That's why kimchi tastes so good. But that's also why kimchi can last so long. Kimchi is preserved vegetables. And when you think about ancient times, they didn't, they didn't have fridges. When you buy meat, what do you do? You buy meat from the butcher, we chuck it in the fridge. But for them, they use salt to preserve. It's a preservative. God turned Lot's wife into a preservative. <laughs> Why? Because Lot's wife was looking to preserve her old life. She was looking back, wanting to preserve her life of sin in Sodom. God literally turns her into a preserver. The whole idea of looking back isn't just a glance. The language here isn't just looking at pretty lights in the sky. The language here is, is better translated to she considered, she paid attention to, she was looking back longingly for what she once lost, for what she has lost. You see, while Lot is lingering around before he leaves, not taking the warning seriously, we have Lot's wife looking longingly over her shoulder for what she's left behind, her old way of life. You see, this is what the author wants the reader to understand. Think about the first readers. Who would have read this story first? It would, it would have been God's people later, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, many years after Abraham and Lot. They're the audience of this, the first audience of this text. And think about what happened to them. They lived in a place called Egypt. And in Egypt, they were under slavery under the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. For many years, they were under that burden, that, that, that yoke of slavery, and God heard their cry. And God rescued them from that place. God saved them. He brings them out of Egypt, into the wilderness, into the desert, where he provides for them. But while they're wandering around in the desert, what are they doing? They're complaining to God. And they keep looking back at Egypt, and they say to God, how I miss my life back then. How I wish to go back to that sort of life. You see, Lot and his family were rescued, they were saved, and they were told, don't look back, look up and trust God. But isn't this for us too? There will be one day where God will judge our city. There will be a day where he'll judge our world, and we'll have to ask ourselves, where will we stand before God? Where will we be looking towards? Will we be the ones uh, that are righteous, that will be rescued, or will we be the unrighteous, who will have to face the terrible judgment of God like Sodom did? Now, I know this type of message makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. It makes me feel uncomfortable talking about it. Even, and I get it, there are many Christians I talk to, and maybe it's because I, I talk to many Christians who don't like this aspect of God. That God is a judge? Uh, I don't like that idea. I, I just want God to be the God of love and thunder. That's all I want, right? Why is that? While many of us don't want to hear about a God who judges sin, we need a God who will you know, I hear so many of my atheist friends say, you know, God is this egotistical, angry, childish God. But when we get the bigger picture of who God is, we see a fatherly God who is good and will bring justice for the oppressed. Justice to a world that if it was let to its own, left on its own, would descend into chaos. We need a God who is a judge, don't we? 
But maybe it makes us a bit uncomfortable because we have to confront ourselves and our own hearts with this truth about God and our sin. Yes, Sodom, Sodom was obviously guilty. I mean, that little example that we have of these men surrounding the house, what did they wanted? Guilty. But me? I'm not like that. You know, we get so turned off by the, the preachers on the soapboxes, you know, preaching the fire and brimstone sermons in the public square. Because those types of sermons, not, that's not for me. That's for the, the really wicked, the sodomites amongst us. Not you and I. For me, yeah, sure, I might lie a little. I might have a bit of greed in my heart, a bit of pride, a bit of selfishness. But this sort of sulfur, brimstone, judgment, none of us upstanding citizens, we, we don't deserve that. You see, what is at the heart of sin? You know, the reality of our nature is that we actually reject God to play God in our own lives. Our hearts of pride might seem small to us, and sure, you know, the selfishness and greed and impatience, disrespect, you know, this might be seem small to us, nothing in comparison to Sodom or the Nazis or people who deserve, you know, they're wicked. But maybe we need to understand what sin really is and not compare ourselves to other flawed human beings, but compare ourselves with the perfect and holy God. When we do that, don't we all stand guilty? Don't we all fall short of God's righteousness? Aren't we the unrighteous? We've got to put sin in the right context. We are all guilty before God. 100% I'm guilty. And you see this picture of judgment in Sodom, it's really just a preview of what we're being warned of too with what's to come. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter writes this in a letter in 2 Peter 2 verse 6. I've got it on the screen. It's just a small verse from, you've got to read the whole context as well when you can. But he says, He condemned the cities, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. See, the reality of judgment will come for our city. It will come for the ungodly. It will come for our world. We'll have to ask, where is our hope? Where is our escape? And you see, the answer lies in Genesis 19. How was Lot and his daughters rescued? By God's mercy, yes, 100%. But as we keep reading in our passage, why did God show them mercy? Why did he relent from bringing Lot and his family under judgment too? Genesis 19, verse 27, at the end of our reading. Verse 27, early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. You see, yes, in chapter 18, we heard about Abraham who prayed for the city. He was, he was begging God, relent from judgment. And here we're reading, God is a, Abraham, God remembered Abraham. That's why Lot was rescued. But was it Abraham? Was Abraham the reason? Because who started, what does it say? It says, God remembered Abraham. But wasn't it God who actually initiated with Abraham in the first place? God's promises to Abraham? It was his covenant that saved Lot. Lot was not saved because of anything righteous he did, right? We know that already. But he was shown mercy by God. It was repeated earlier for us. In the same way, you and I, where is our hope found? Well, guess what? It's in the same promises he gives to Abraham. Not just those promises, but those promises fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, who came from Abraham's line, a child of promise who will bring blessing to his people. When Jesus comes to our world, when he goes to the Roman cross, he took the death and punishment that was reserved for the ungodly. That's us, people like you and I. Jesus came and faced destruction so you and I wouldn't have to face destruction. This is the great forgiveness that we have in Jesus when we put our faith in him. 
Uh, I can't not mention our, our late Queen Elizabeth in today's talk. Right? She recognized this truth, and I love that she said so much good stuff about Jesus in her public statements. There's this quote I have from her uh, in one of her Christmas messages, I'm sure, uh, I, th- I think. Um, it says, Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our reckless, recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with a power to forgive. That's what we need, a saviour with a power to forgive. While Lot was willing to throw his daughters out to be torn apart, God our Father sent his one and only son to this world to be torn apart. He was whipped, spat on, crucified, so we wouldn't have to face the sulfury eternity of God's wrath that was reserved for us. While Lot's job was to be a father and keep his daughters safe and protected, our God demonstrates his goodness as our perfect father who promises to protect us and keep us safe by giving, his up, giving up his only son. You see, God in his mercy and grace was willing. in his mercy and grace, was willing to protect and save us from the destruction that is to come. Jesus was that sacrifice, the the righteous for the unrighteous. And while the story of Sodom is such a, like this dreary, heavy chapter of the Bible, it's really a pointer, right? A pointer to us in the mercy and grace of God, isn't it? The one who does rescue his people, who does call us to repentance, who does call us to trust in him, to have faith. Find the salvation for our souls that, that, you know, in, in Jesus that we so desperately need. For those in the room who aren't Christians, let, don't hesitate. Don't linger. Heed the warning. Run. Run from sin. Don't look back. There is a life to be had in the gospel. So much more joy and freedom and security when you plumb the depths of God's grace and mercy in Christ. Yes, a city of Sodom is tempting. The city of Sodom you know, promises status and success and sex, but it will one day all come to nothing. It only pales in comparison to the treasures found in Christ and the eternity offered with God. Today, you are invited. If you're not a Christian, you are invited to receive the gospel of Christ where there is safety, where there is security. Trust Him. The death and resurrection of Jesus is sufficient to cover all our sins, humanity's past, present, and future. How? Through faith in His grace and His grace alone. Because Jesus was that perfect, obedient, godly one that we couldn't be. The better Abraham, who intercedes for us, the one who gives up his very life on our behalf. But if you have put your faith in Christ already, and you take the title as of, of Christian, you call yourself a Christian, what are you gleaning from this passage today? What are we gleaning? Most of us don't hear most of us hear this message and, and we're not we're not like the Sodomites. But perhaps what we need to do is look at the example of Lot and his wife and what not to do. Because if there's anyone we can relate to, it's it's them, right, in the story. Yes, they know Abraham's God, but do they trust him? I mean, we know about Jesus, but are we walking in step with him? Are we trusting him with our lives? Isn't the temptation to look back over our shoulder and think, wow, life was so much easier without Jesus? Oh, wow, so much more carefree, where I could just blend in with the world around me, my, my non-believing friends. I can just be self-absorbed, self-sufficient. Man, that sounds so, self, so fulfilling. I mean, isn't that the narrative of Sodom? It's all about self, isn't it? A story of self-preservation rather than self-sacrifice for the sake of Jesus. But let's heed the warning. Jesus is fully aware of the temptation in our hearts. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus warns this very danger. In Luke uh, 17, verse 30, I've got it on the screen as well. It says, 
It will be just like the day of the Son of Man. On this, it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. See, while the warning from Jesus is remember Lot's wife, the reality is, I don't need to remember. I look in the mirror, and there she is. <laughs> I'm Lot's wife. Not because of my long, luscious hair. I'm Lot's wife. <laughs> but because at times, I see my sin, and I don't necessarily hate it. Because at times, I, I flirt with sin. I linger. Yeah, 100%, I'm, I'm a born-again Christian, but my life too often at times desires to engage with my old self not wanting to let go of certain habits, moments of selfishness, of greed, of pride that harbors in my heart. Don't you, like me, need to he heed this warning as well, to remember Lot's wife? To instead set your gaze upon the cross, to look up to God, to look to his mercy and grace, to the promises in Christ that we have, that we will be rescued, to trust him and to trust his word for you? Aren't we all like Lot's wife at times? I love how Jen Wilkins, she's an author and preacher in the US, she puts it this way. She says, she says this, I've got a quote on the screen. Oh no, I don't have this quote. I've got it here. My prayer, she says this, my prayer is that the memory of our past sins would be laced with the pungent odor of the fires of Sodom, the reek of God's wrath, exterminating the godlessness of our former days, the aroma of God's grace pointing us toward new life, Eyes fixed on our Savior. Do you want me to say that again? My prayers that the memory of our past sins would be laced with the pungent odor of the fires of Sodom, the reek of God's wrath, exterminating the godlessness of our former days, the aroma of God's grace pointing us towards new life, eyes fixed on our Savior. Are we fixing our eyes on Sodom or are we fixing our eyes on our Savior? To be honest, it doesn't take much, does it, to drift back into a life without God. It does start with simply with not meeting with God's people, not going to church, where we justify our absence at church and we distance ourselves from God's family. We stop reading our Bibles and letting his word lead our lives. Eventually, prayer is just a routine or it becomes non-existent, only there when we're desperate. And it's subtle, but before you know it, you're drifting with the current of the world further and further away from God in a life without God. Like Lot, we want to have a foot in both worlds, hoping we can have what the world offers and still be saved when the destruction comes. But friends, Jesus doesn't water down his words here. If you want to try to keep your old life, you will one day lose it. But if you're willing to let go and look up to God and trust in Jesus, then you will be saved. As we think of the sin of Sodom in Genesis 19, let's keep our gaze fixed on our Savior. Let's not linger, but keep running back to the cross of Christ where salvation is found. But lastly, with this knowledge of the truth and the hope we hold on to, are we bringing that news with urgency to those around us too? To those who are on that path of destruction? Imagine if they, imagine your friends, your family, if they were just lingering on the train tracks and the train was coming, what are you doing? You, you, you're, you're screaming, run, get off the tracks, you'll die. And in the same vein, are we bringing that urgent message to those around us, run, 
Run from your sin. Run to Jesus. Judgment is coming. This isn't a joke. This is a code red. Jesus will come in judgment. And I want as many people as I know, with my best efforts, to plead with them, run, run from your sin, turn and find salvation in Christ. Don't you? Because the sad truth is our friends, our families, our neighbors around us, they aren't looking up to God. They're looking down, self-absorbed, unaware that there is an asteroid, metaphorically, approaching the earth. Humanity will face the judgment of a just and merciful God. Will we plea with them in love to look up, in trust and worship? Will you lead them in a prayer like the one we heard earlier? Heavenly Father, Almighty Creator, we ask for your grace despite our pride, your forgiveness despite our doubt. But not only that, lead them to seek and take hold of the salvation that only Jesus can offer. Friends, that is my hope for you today. That you will run to Jesus, run to his cross if you haven't already. Trust in him, surrender your lives into his hands. And for our church, be the faithful messenger of good news. We've been shown the way to eternal life and salvation. We can't hold on and and self-preserve to save ourselves, but instead, let's look up. Let's fix our gaze on Christ. And in doing so, let's use every medium possible, our voices, our actions, our social media accounts, whatever it is, to tell our city, salvation is here. It has come. It has come in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are sorry. We're sorry for our sin. For hearts that turn from you and turn to our self-sufficiency and self-preservation, not trusting you, thinking we can save ourselves, help us to run to you, our Savior. Uh, but Father, we pray to lead us, those, those who are wandering, those who are often led astray, help us by your Spirit to not uh, desire looking back at our old lives, but to fix our gaze on the cross where life is found, where goodness and love and joy is. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And it's in his precious name, Lord, we pray for this. Amen.